Welcome to Derail Trains of Thoughts. Welcome to Derail Trains of Thoughts. My name is Timothy Deal, aka Timoteo. And this is uh, Nick Hayden, aka Nikolai Borshevsky. And that's all we got. Yeah. <laughs> okay, not really. <laughs> Welcome. This is a, a podcast devoted to writing, filmmaking, and everything in between. Basically, this is kind of a uh, storytelling podcast that uh, Nick and I, we, when we get into conversations, it can go anywhere, hence your real trains of thought. Which is stolen from a, a website and was stolen from a writing group and was stolen from, I don't know, I think it was a blog at one point, too. Was it? I knew. About, I knew about the forum. Oh, it was. A, it was um, a film company too. Remember? Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. So yeah, rich history behind the derailed trains of thought legacy. We'll be talking a bit about uh, a bit about writing, since again, that's derailed trains of thought kind of uh, legacy again. And we'll talk a bit about filming because I'm currently in film school. So let me. I'll I'll introduce myself a little bit more for those who don't know me. Again, name is Tim Deal, and I'm in film school right now at Regent University, where I'm pursuing a master's degree in cinema television with an emphasis in editing. So uh, nonlinear editing is is kind of uh, my specialty. But I uh, before before I had even thought about a film career, I was always interested in writing and storytelling in general. So that's kind of where Nick and I bonded, and Nick. Why don't you tell them a little yeah. bit about yourself? Uh, I'm Nick Hayden, and let's see. I've been writing stories for a long time. For I thought I was going to be a math teacher. Uh, decided not to be a math teacher, but to be a writer. Um, written two books that are published, about two or three more that need to be published. I make my money as a bookkeeper, and I always have some sort of crazy idea that I want to write, but doesn't necessarily get done. A lot of ideas. <laughs> yeah, Tim's heard plenty of those. You guys will probably hear more than you would like. And and talk about your current website a little bit. Oh, yeah. I, I have a website. It's a website. Um, <laughs> I've been doing the serialized novels on my website. It's nickhayden.digitalnovelist.com. Um, over about the course of a year and a half, I published uh, a book called A Girl Called Snort about this girl who's born with a pig's face. She goes on an adventure to find a human face. Um, basically three installments a week for about a year and a half, and it got finished up just a couple months ago. And currently there's a story called The Story Project, which Tim and I and my wife and others worked on, um, and we're posting Highly that. recommend Highly rec recommend It starts a little slow, but it ends up very, very good. Basically, The Story Project was about a group of writers who lived all in one mansion, and they wrote uh, journals about what a... Uh, about what happened to them. So basically, it's a collection of fictional uh, blogs or journals. Yeah, I think, it, and they all interrelate. I, I think we have about thirteen characters who write fictional blogs at one point in the story. Yeah, it, and it's it's quite a group. And they're very interesting. They're great characters. There's a great ending to the whole thing. Some good surprises. We were really happy with the way it turned out, but it does start slow. It the it was about it was a two year project, and so the first two few months we were trying to figure out what was going on exactly yeah we wrote it in real time there was yeah there, there exactly. wasn't really much editing we just kind of as it happened we wrote it so there there was some planning but really not that much if you can't tell we're really proud of it <laughs> go read it <laughs> this is a nice time to get into it now if you want to if you want to do the serialized format it's it's in march now and there's more characters and uh yeah again highly recommend it and hopefully there'll be a new website soon, but we'll tell you that when it happens. Yes. All right, so that's a little bit more about us. And so with that said, let's, let's dig in here. Let's, uh, let's go to story school. All right. It's always important to brush up on your storytelling craft, so in this segment, Nick and I discuss a concept of writing and or filmmaking 
based on our own experience. And today's topic is... Endings. This is our first podcast we're talking about endings. So, yeah, that's the way we work. Uh, Nick, this is... You, you, I'm going to hand the mic over to you in this bit, because you've... You've recently finished um, or finishing a big project or an old project. Yeah, I actually suggested this idea because um, I'm finishing a novel called The Squire, which it began, I think, in 03. It's been sitting on my desk for a long, long time, and I finally finished it. I actually just last week wrote the last chapter, and endings kind of freaked me out <laughs> because I'm good at starting stories. I'm good at keeping them going. I'm good at cliffhangers. At least I think I am. But... Ending a story, you may have to make it feel closed without giving too a too nice of an ending. People want happy endings, or I like happy endings, but you don't want to make it too happy, too over the top per se. Um, but you don't want to make it so that there has to be a sequel either. So trying to balance all these, and I have like fifteen characters, which is actually pretty common for you, <laughs> which is actually very common for me. Um, there's only one main character, and he gets his ending pretty easy. And he, I've always known his ending. The other ones, I don't want to give real nice endings to, be they're, they're all sub-characters, but they need to have some sort of closure, be they all have kind of their own problems. And my hope is I have this one chapter where they're all doing the crazy battle going on, and hopefully you, they all get a sense of at least how they've grown. We'll see. I, I've been typing up. I, I wrote the ending of the notebook. I thought I needed an epilogue. Cut the epilogue. I'm going. To, I'm typing it up right now, and I think I'll probably spend a lot of time reading the last three chapters and seeing if I hit everything with the right notes. Nice, because most of the book was actually finished for a long time, and just the ending is actually fairly new. Yeah, the ending. Uh, I think it kept me from <laughs> finishing the book for a long time. Yeah, because I was within four chapters of the end for the last. Three, four years, I think. Just kept being sidetracked or not wanting to buckle down and end the thing. That's an intimidating end, I guess. Well, I think an ending needs both a physical ending and an emotional ending. That you need, you mm -hmm. know, the battle is won or something like that. But then you want the characters to feel like they something happened to them. You know, Star Wars. The Death Star blows up, that's the end. But you also have this, you know, the, the ceremony that makes you feel like oh, wait, they're all happy and they're all friends and Han Solo came back and all this other kind of emotional closure. You know, I heard that uh, that thing about, uh, was it Gary Kurtz? The Star Wars producer who actually wanted the Return of the Jedi to end with 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 Han Solo dying at oh, some yeah. point. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, um, I can see why people don't care for the teddy bear Ewoks, but... I much prefer Star Wars as a space fantasy and then as, you know, hardcore science fiction. As awesome as the darkness of Empire Strikes Back is, personally, I'm a lot happier with the way the original trilogy ended. I, I have to agree there, actually, because, well, I'm a sucker for happy endings. Um, and that's a great one. I mean, you have basically half the movie's a giant battle. If it ended with a giant battle on this, you know, face, uh, space fantasy and then, like, one character died and one walked away. I, mean, I think Luke was supposed to kind of walk into the sunset like some old Western um, hero. It, it probably would have been more artsy in some ways, but I don't think it would have been as, well, near as much fun. In a sense, it wouldn't really have hold as true to the kind of legends that, that he was working with. He was working off a lot of archetypes with, with Star Wars, you know, the, the wizard, the kid who has to save the day, and... And I think it's totally fine for it to have more of a fairy tale ending than a strictly realistic one. I actually, you know, I was thinking about this when we decided endings was going to be the the theme of this podcast. Um, that um, it, endings are kind of built into our our nature. I think people like happy endings because they feel like good characters should have good endings. Mm -hmm. And so, if you have a you know, if you have a hero, you want him to get the girl and be happy and live happily ever after because it's it's justice for a good guy to have a good ending and bad guys should die horrible deaths uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i think that appeals to there's a part of us and at least a, a part of me that i feel that sometimes not always but sometimes i want um more lighthearted stories not to show me life as it is not completely but life as it more like how it should be I think that's actually one of the main 
at least for me, one of the main goals of, of writing. Hmm. To show how the world should be and not necessarily how it is. We get plenty of how it is. Yeah, there's all, all kinds of people that t- want to talk about the realism. That's... But showing characters who act like we would want to act in a, cer- in a certain situation, to me, oftentimes means a lot more than showing someone who would act just like, you know, a real someone you'd read from in, in the headlines. And you, you'd be, you're much more likely to be courageous and, and daring and truthful and all these other things if all the stories you surround yourself with, you know, say this is a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. I love, I was thinking of this. I love old stories. In old stories, there's always, you know, fan- in fantasies and uh, myths, folk- folklore. There's always magic. But almost one of the most powerful magics in these old myths are is just making a promise. You can't break a promise in a story. Mm. It's impossible. But, yeah. you know, in real life, it's like breathing to break a promise. But it, it shows a completely different way of looking at the world. And I, I, I was going to mention this earlier. I think we want happy endings, but at the same time, some of us want sad endings or understand sad endings because we understand the world's messed up. Yeah. And so, so I can understand both, and I've written sad endings. Um, what was that flash fiction I read wrote recently, Dinner at Twilight? Which, which is very dark. Which is very dark. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I write dark stuff also, but I don't yeah. know that's the only thing worth writing. Well, you know, and it really does depend on your story at large. You and I and some listeners might ver- might venomously disagree with us, but <laughs> I know you and you and I uh, really appreciated the ending to Lost. Yes. Now that that was granted that we had kind of an understanding eventually that it, the show wasn't quite what people wanted it to be, and it didn't wrap up everything. But in the context of the world and the and especially the world view it had. It really fit, even though it, you know everything didn't turn out hunky dory. Um, it, I think, it really fit the story more than more than some people would give it credit for. Well, I I agree, and actually, occasionally I still think about the ending, and I'll take people's uh, criticisms and say, okay, let's see, let's look at that and see if that's valid or not. Like people say, all that all the last season they just ran around the island not doing anything, which mm-hmm. is true. Um, but then I think, well, there's gotta be a purpose for that. I, you know, I always go with that. The writer has a purpose for doing what they do. Um, and then if I can't find it, then I say they're just horrible writers, but, <laughs> but I think it's interesting. Season five is almost completely plot, mm. like hardcore plot. Season six is really, they're almost solely for, except near the end, the sideways. It's a character study almost. Mm-hmm. Almost like in an in, in eternal sense, asking that question, can people really change, or are they always going to do the same thing over and over again? And I think in that context, the ending is particularly good. Well, let me pose a question for you yes. this way. Do you think people would have accepted it more if they had done it a little more the other way around, where season five had been a bit more of a character study, and then season six, the last one, it would have been all about the crazy plot things winding up. I, I do think it would go better because you have to admit, doing what they did in season six is very untraditional. And <laughs> personally, I think very gutsy. And I to like the, the fact that they that they kept trying different sorts of things. Um, but yeah, it's not... Endings, whether they work or not, largely depend on expectations also. Mm, and very true. I, I think, especially since you didn't know what the sideways were until the end, I don't think the expectations could ever match up to what they what the writers thought was the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was some of us, and I and I kind of I kind of was in this boat for a while that we kind of expected that at some points in in the last season we would kind of understand what everything was about, and it would be less about mysteries and more about okay, how are we going to, you know, handle this big crisis or something like that? Um, how, how is, now that we know what's going on, how is it going to wind up? Yeah. Um, and Lost, instead of doing that, Lost held true to its mysterious nature until the bitter end. Now, you can, you can argue that maybe they should have answered more stuff. And I could, I, you know, I could, I could agree with you maybe. I, I don't like to second-guess writers per se. 
because they've probably talked about a lot more than we have being the critics. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they did the show. Yeah, um, exactly. That, and quick side tangent. Yeah. I've mentioned this before, but I, but I love to you, but I love the bend about it. Um, people need to give writers more credit because, again, yeah, like you said, they have created the world. They have spent so much time working through the parameters. It's not like they just throw something out there and say, well, that's what we wanted to do, so suck it. Um, which is a lot of times what the armchair critics would say. No, and it, it's it, so much more than that. Yeah, and I agree with you. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no problem. Not that writers don't make mistakes, but I think many times it's just a. I think it's perceived expectation. Sometimes, sometimes the writers had a completely different desire of what they wanted to get done. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, you know, one of my personal pieces in season six is that they never gave us a real sense of danger of. Uh, Man in Black, Locke getting off the island. They said everything was going to end. Yeah. Was it really going to end? But then I was thinking, I read this great theory that season six is basically season two all over again with the hatch. Um, and they kept saying that if you didn't press the button, the world was going to end. And we never had any proof it was going to end. Um, hmm. And it's they did the same thing again, basically, in a very nice parallelism. Or if you want to be cynical, a nice uh, copying themselves. <laughs> um, so I, I do think, in my character study theory, is that season six is also not just about the characters, of the character, but the character of the island. People universally, well, not universally, many people hated Across the Sea. I thought it was a fabulous episode. And I think it showed that not only were the characters trying to see if they could not do the same thing over and over again, but the island itself was trying to see if it could not do the same thing over and over again. There's this circularity to you know the hatch and and the and the island and you know babies being taken and people being killed and all this stuff that happened over and over throughout its history. Mm -hmm. um, and Which I think is a fascinating concept. I mean, we we hear we we do see that reflected in real history and that it repeats itself a lot. Well, and it goes with Lost's very Eastern philosophy too. This kind mm -hmm. of you know karma until you break free from it sort of thing. And you get the impression, at least, or you can, that the you know the end is that they broke some of the old cycles with Hurley and various other things. Yeah, that's probably more lost than anyone wanted to hear. Like four months after it's over, but <laughs> probably. probably. <laughs> Don't worry, we will well, not always talk about Lost. Just every other episode. We'll we'll try anyway. <laughs> um, going back to your going back to your. Uh, your book, yes. did you did you wind up, because I know at one point you were thinking about um, changing the point of view before the end. Did you wind up doing that? Or you were thinking about writing, you actually, for a while, you were thinking about doing alternate endings almost, trying I, to two different styles. I did the, the second to last chapter um, is a chapter without the main character, and I think the only chapter in the entire book without the main character. Um, wow. And it's kind of my way of kind of doing little tiny story arcs or finishing off little tiny story arcs for the rest of the 12 guys running around with them, well, guys and girls. And I think I'm going to keep the, the, the point of view shift. I have to read in context, and I haven't had a chance to do that yet. Um, and it's kind of different, but I think it works. And again, I, I can change my mind tomorrow on that. Uh-huh. And the thing is, this point of view change, I've thought, I, I've planned since, uh, you know, somewhere very early on in the process. So this is the only book I've ever written an entire outline for, which I also blame. Really? I blame that for also why I didn't finish it. I got bored with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't usually work off of outlines. No, I normally wing it. I mean, I'll have some vague overarching out outline in my head, but I'm very organic in my style. Which makes it amazing that like Girl Called Snort, which was I you know I ended this year, that I actually pulled off what I thought was a decent ending. Well, Girl Called Snort, you had the advantage you had set yourself. You did several story arcs. That's a very kind of traveling story. It, it is it's she, very Odyssey oriented. Yeah, so that that might have helped you because you had gotten the habit of finishing one arc, so then it was just kind of a matter of a big arc to kind of finish it all. That's true, and that that it did help quite a bit. And I always knew. Speaking of endings, I always knew that. Girl Called Snort's basically about this girl wants to get her human face. So the end has to either be she gets the face or she doesn't get the face. 
So it's either a happy ending or a sad ending or a, uh, you thought it was going to be sad, but it's actually a happy ending if you want to say, like, she doesn't get her face, but she learned something about herself sort of junk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's cynical. <laughs> but so now you could be like, like J. Michael Zinsky and give the end you thought everyone wanted halfway through the series and switch everything. Uh, That's true. Well, or the, the Lord of the Rings ending. The, yeah, the Lord where, of the Rings ending. Yeah. Where they won, but then they got a whole bunch of other stuff to take care of. Where you have the longest, like, uh, resolution known to man. <laughs> Which works. I mean, it works fabulous. I, I always like to have my resolution as close as humanly possible to the climax. Mm. But I don't, I don't know why. I think I just like to end it as soon as possible. The other thing I had to do reading through my ending is make sure there's enough breathing space at the end that you feel like you get to enjoy the ending long yeah, enough. Yeah, so so it's not like, okay, the bad guy is vanquished and now we have to say goodbye to all these people without really finding out what they did afterwards. Exactly, because I don't want to extend it too long, but I want to give it that breathing room. So that will be my t- trick over the next couple of weeks. Nice. Coming from a filmmaking perspective, I was thinking about alternate endings, which is one reason why I was asking you about that. It seems like writers have alternate endings a lot less than, say, big-budget films do. Why is that? Well, I think part of it is that there's so much more money involved in the film production that the producers often are coming from a very business perspective. So they do audience test screenings to try to see which will work. And, I mean, that's that's part of it. Part of it is just the business end of it. But there may be something more to it from a directing standpoint, too, I'm not, which I'm not entirely certain of. Um, it just seems strange to me because it seems like that there should only be... I mean, if you set up your characters well and everything, there should only be one ending that fits, I would think. Yeah. But then again, I mean, there's such a difference sometimes between what's in your script and then what's on the screen. That's true. That's true. Uh, the other day, I was taking a study break at the library, and I was wandering through some of the shelves, and I found a screenplay for It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Um, nice thing about, you know, at a film school, that we've got a lot of more screenplays than most people would. And anyway, I was thumbing through it, and I found toward... Toward the end, you know, you know the part where after George Bailey has, you know, he's he's been saved and he's running through through town yelling "Merry Christmas" to everyone, and he stops and says hi to Mister Potter. Mm-hmm. And in the script, after he does that, um, there's a short scene between Mister Potter and Clarence. Actually, Clarence shows up, and Mister Potter's like, "Who are you?" And Clarence kind of proceeds to scold him, basically, kind of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge style about what a lonely man he actually is and that's about it and i and then i i got curious i looked up on wikipedia and i guess in another version there was a part where it had been found out what what potter had done and then he got you know he basically got his comeuppance mm-hmm. and i can imagine how from from one perspective as a screenwriter you would want that especially you know 1940s the bad guy always has to you know come to justice some, some yeah well usually but in retrospect, doing something like that where we kind of say, ha-ha, Mr. Potter, it would kind of interrupt interrupt the flow of George's, you know, the big the big joy rush, basically, from getting his life back and then all the people coming and, and helping him out. It would, it would kind of, I think it would kind of, would have interrupted the flow of that to suddenly, you know, break away to this other guy getting arrested or something. Well, that makes, actually, I've heard that before, not that particular story but that when you the, the screenplay looks good and then when you put it on film it completely interrupts the the motion or the flow of the film and i guess maybe that's the difference between movies and books books you don't have such an emotional attack i mean there's not this sense of emotion pushing you through per se you read mm-hmm. it in a more analytical sense i mean there's emotion still but movies you're hoping to keep one solid emotion through a variety of scenes and build upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I remember uh, reading somewhere that the writers of the newest Star Trek movie had a lot more scenes with the bad guy in the original script, but the more they edited, the more they figured out the movie was really about uh, Kirk and Spock and like cut out massive amounts of the bad guy. Yeah, films can change a lot in the editing room. Um, it's really an amazing process. 
I, I, I enjoyed editing a lot when I did my few films. Because you can really make it. That's where you put it together. Yeah, that's that's where it takes its shape. And uh, some some editors actually view the screenplay as kind of, and the and the footage as kind of just the raw material that the the film has has yet to really take its shape until you know after they've you know worked with it. I can I can see that as a valid way of uh, viewing film. I think directors would have an issue with that, but. <laughs> Well, I think George Lucas basically loves the cutting room. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard um, Mark Hamill actually one time describe him kind of as as a tinker. You know, kind of like how someone likes to tinker with cars. And mm-hmm. he said George was always Lucas always really enjoyed you know tinkering, you know, tweaking this and that. And I can see. I'm sure some of some of the Star Wars fans wish he would stop. But <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I can I can see that about him. That's all I got. Cool. That, well, that's I think that's, a, <laughs> that's all we got. That's all we got. Well, let's move on to soundtrack. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Soundtrack is Tim and I like music, especially video game remixes that you find free online. Um, I'm, we're always sending each other recommendations. So we thought we'd share some music we've been listening to with our audience. Hopefully, once we figure out copyrights, we can do some original music, too, that we own. I picked out today for my soundtrack choice, largely because of the title. I like the piece of music, but the title works with this podcast. It's from Breath of Fire 4. It's called Endings, Beginnings, and One Hell of a Trip. (laughs) I love the title. It's a great title. And it's by another, or it's remixed by another soundscape, very electronic-y and fun. You better say, another soundscape is the name of the remixer. Oh, yeah, did I not say that? The way you said it is like, it's mixed by another soundscape. Oh! (laughs) That sounds confusing. The name name of the the remixer is is another soundscape, who does a lot of really neat stuff. All right, let's take a listen.
Hopefully you enjoyed that. Time for our next segment, our take on Tales. In this section, we'll talk about just uh, things we've watched, seen, read, that we feel like talking about. Could be movies, could be a book, could be anything. Actually, I have no idea what Nick is going to talk about, and vice versa. Yeah, so. that's true. So you start this time. I talked about my book last time. Okay, today I, I thought we'd talk about um, The Jazz Singer. Oh, I've heard of it. I've not seen it. Yeah, I, I, I just saw this recently for my History of American Cinema class, and it's it's a noteworthy film. It's it's largely credited for being the first motion picture with sound. Okay. The full first the first full length motion picture with sound. Part of the film is silent, um, but part of it has it, part of it does have sound. Its basic story is about a Jewish boy who is interested in singing jazz or a very white version of jazz. <laughs> Honestly, the music in the movie doesn't sound much like jazz from what I've heard. But anyway, this is against his father's wishes because his father is a very conservative Jew and thinks jazz is of the devil or something. I want to be a dentist. No, he must be a toy maker. <laughs> What's that Monty Python skit? <laughs> when he, uh... The, the, the poet... Oh, he, he's a poet. And, and, and his son wants to work in the coal mine. Yeah, exactly. The dad's the, the poet and the writer, and he's so discouraged... This point, and his son just wants to be a coal miner. Wish his dad would get over it. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Uh, but this is the more traditional. Uh, it's very kind of you know the story is very new versus old, new world versus old world, and so all the all the singing portions are in sound, and there's some talking that'll be in, you know mixed in with it, but then it will go into silent for other parts of it. Um, my thoughts, honestly. If it wasn't for the historical significance of it, I'm not sure that the story would really be remembered all that much today. It wasn't really a new story even when it was made. Um, <laughs> when was it made? Like 1927. 27, okay. 1927. And the Sound Revolution followed very shortly after that by 19... I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a very successful movie in its day. People were amazed by, by the sound innovations and... Really, only took about two or three years after that. By 1930, most theaters were had switched over to sound. Okay, switched over to talkies because the industry had known this was coming for a while. It was just kind of it took Warner Brothers to figure out how to do it and do it successfully before it became implemented. But anyway, from a modern perspective, the story is is got some problems. It's a bit melodramatic at times. There's some some plot holes, but. They did do a number of things effectively. Like, for instance, I imagine during the sound bits, it would be quite tempting to just leave the camera on the singer the whole time, you know, just to show off their new trick. That's true, yeah. But um, they they do cut away from, from the singer. They show other people, you know, their reactions. In another one where it's the father, the Jewish father, singing, uh, he's a Jewish cantor, I should say, so he actually sings important songs for the ceremonies and they show him singing in the temple while this while the boy is going back home and getting his stuff to run away from home and so i mean they're showing simultaneous action in another area and then one of the most dramatic uses of sound in it is at one point when after he's after he's been gone for a long time he, he leaves home for about 20 years then comes back and to visit his mother and He's playing piano for him, and there's they're singing a, a neat song then. And the father comes in, and after staring in horror for a minute, the father yells, Stop! And all the music cuts out. The piano playing cuts out. The normal silent film accompaniment doesn't start in for a little while, so there's just this very dramatic moment where they're all kind of looking at each other, and the audience is like, Oh, what will happen now? So... So they really use the innovation of sound very effectively. But again, if it wasn't for historical significance, I'm not sure the story would stand on its own very well. Okay. So. so I don't necessarily have to see it. I can just hear you talk about it. <laughs> kind of. Well, I mean, if you want to see, like I said, I mean, it's worth seeing if you're interested in film history. Yeah. Which I am vaguely, but I got so many movies to watch. I'll probably put yeah. that at the bottom. Yeah. I, <laughs> I wouldn't worry. There, there are other ones that uh, 
that might be more important. But <laughs> it, it is amazing though. Sound plays such a large role now. In yeah, I mean, not just sound effects. I mean, but the way you can play with music and sound effects and various other things is just. I mean, it's second nature now. You don't even think about it. It sneaks in your brain. Mm-hmm. And really, intention. it's come down to the point when student filmmakers often rely too much on sound and dialogue to tell the story. And professors often have to kind of remind them how to use um, just the images and facial expressions and lighting and cinematography and that stuff to tell a story. Because, I mean, originally motion pictures were all about just that, it's telling stories with minimum amount of words. So not like uh, The Love Life of Wallace P. Fitzgerald. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, Wallace P. Fitzgerald was a uh, was a, a film I made my senior year that Nick wrote for me. It, which, it should have been a play. Yeah. It's a great, <laughs> great screenplay, great story, but so much dialogue in that. <laughs> a lot of dialogue. Yeah. Quite funny. Is it on YouTube? Um, not yet. I keep meaning to. Um, when it's on YouTube, we'll have to tell you guys where it is. Yeah. It is entertaining. Yeah, yeah, it is entertaining. People, people have enjoyed it. It's, it's not quite to the par of, of the Taylor trilogy, which is a series <laughs> of films that Nick did while while he was still an undergrad. But it's 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 a spiritual brother to it, I think. Some sometime I I need to write the the play of Walt P. Fitzgerald. I, I think, think it would make a great play. I, I I agree. It would. It's it's a it's a really fun um, romantic comedy solely from a guy's perspective. And a marriage happens very, very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's yeah, it, that's that's what I got. That's 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 all you got. Yeah. <laughs> that's becoming our catchphrase very quickly. <laughs> so I, I had a couple of things I could talk about, but even though I'm kind of behind the the curve from you and some other people, Tim, I just finished season two of Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yay! Which was very good. Which um, Toph is completely awesome. Um, <laughs> she's oh yeah, because isn't at the end. She's of now a metal bender. Yeah, yeah, and metal bending is amazing. It's... <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I found so interesting re-watching it two th- two episodes before the end, um, they all split up, and I was kind of hoping there would be like four different battles at the end. Um, but they all came together, and it was still very very cool battles. I wasn't uh-huh. disappointed, but. There was, I like having lots of plates spinning simultaneously. Um, Tim knows this. I, I, if I can, the more chaos <laughs> I can get going, the better. Oh yes. Which is why I always have so many characters. Um, speaking of spinning plates, Inception is awesome. Second off, <laughs> um, well, the other thing I found interesting was that there were like some heavy, uh, speaking of Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back overtones to the last two episodes. Hmm. Um, what I mean is, so yeah, go uh, into that. Aang is uh, with the guru trying to master his avatar state. Like this special, if you haven't seen the cartoon, he's this special state where he's uber powerful. Like a trance from Final Fantasy IX. Or like any anime character. Or any anime character who just like goes nuts. Super Saiyan or yeah. So anyways, he has to give up. He's going through all these things and it's very Buddhist kind of giving up his attachments to the world. And he can't. And while while he's in the middle of trying to, he has this vision about Katara, his girl, basically. I'm not yet, but going to be. Love interest. Um, love interest. Um, in danger. And he's like, I have to leave. And the mentor's like, no, you can't. If you leave now, you'll never be completely trained. Which is very Yoda. Yeah, that's um, true. It's... Very like, you can't go to Cloud City. You have to stay here. That's a good point. I, I remember watching that and feel, and feeling like it was very familiar. But I'm not sure if I ever connected it to Empire Strikes Back. And I, and I don't mind it referring to Empire Strikes Back because oh, it's no. a very uh, archetypal and very Eastern sort of idea. Um, I really do enjoy then at the end that he went, even when he tried to give up his attachments, it backfired on him. Mm-hmm. Um, be, very Luke. Yes, and I... <laughs> because I th- I, I'm glad they didn't go with the, the, the very Jedi idea of you can't have any attachments at all. Which you know drove uh, Anakin insane, basically. Yeah, that really is kind of what what drove the what really weakened the Jedi Order in the end. So it was isn't it interesting for them tackling the same thing, and at least how I read it, not having watched season three, come down on the fact that um, attachment's good, that love is better than power and perfection. Uh, basically, uh, what the uncle in um, Inro uh, Iro Iro, Iro mm-hmm. um, basically said: Look, perfection's overrated. Love's awesome. 
Yeah. <laughs> Iroh's completely awesome. He really is. Yeah. And and then you just have them completely defeated. Everything's horrible, and they leave, which is very Empire Strikes Back too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I remember uh, my friend describing before I had seen it describing um, the end of season two, and it's just like, well, well, crap. What now? <laughs> kind of feeling at the end. But, but I I love the character. Uh, Tim got me into this show. I love the characters. Love the action. Love the humor. I mean, it's just it is very very well done. It's a wonderful show all around. I mean, the final fight is in that season is cool, but in some ways, I'm a bigger fan of the fight when they're going to when they battle their way in to see the emperor. Yeah, that's that is a fabulous fight. Particularly since it had it had been kind of built up to that with all the because they're in the city called Ba Sing Se, which is very very kind of um, conspiracy stuff going on, and so and which hampers the characters' goals for a while. So when they finally have, get to break past that, it's really, uh, really vindictive. And can I tell you, I need there needs to be more like you know primetime TV shows who can ramp up tension towards the season's finale, like Avatar does. Mm. I mean, their plot arcs are fabulous, and for some reason, TV thinks that oh, audiences can't handle long, heavy plot arcs. But yeah. so, so they're like, but okay, but these kids, these twelve-year-old kids, they can handle it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it seems it does seem like there is more leeway for animated series. I think that's why they, they I think they test a lot of stuff because first off, it's for kids, so you don't have to. Well, you know, they, they're a little more addictive to things too. I mean, they're going to follow it religiously, and your prime time TV isn't necessarily people are just turning it on if they're not interested. They're not going to watch it the next week. Yeah, that's that's one reason why you have so many procedurals. Yeah. I'm looking forward to trying out some of these new TV shows. For the new season? I have new not season. followed much yet. Oh, no, I haven't watched. I'm going to try the event. I'll probably, I hope it's a very complicated story, but it probably <laughs> won't be. I'm, I'm longing for some horribly complicated TV show. <laughs> yeah, that makes us kind of unique, I think. The more complicated, <laughs> right now, the better. The only thing I have right now is Doctor Who, which not so much complicated, just insane. <laughs> and very creative. Very, very creative. Mm-hmm. Yes, but yeah, I, I'll probably, I'll probably watch the event. I would like to see what that, how that goes, and and if Zach recommends anything, I might try it. He's my, he watches all, every new show that is worth watching, mm-hmm. at least for a couple episodes. Oh, one well, before we leave Avatar, yeah, real quick. As far as long term character arcs go, Zuko is just amazing. Zuko's Zuko's a great character. They've done fabulous with him. Particularly in the second season, the first season, in some ways, he re- he is a little stiff. But the second season, when he's cut off from, he's basically cut off from his nation entirely. He doesn't have any power anymore. He's a fugitive, and then slow, slowly, kind of getting a, a feeling for what other people, all the other nations, think of them, of the Fire Nation, and you're waiting for him to turn to the good side, and he's so close. He is so very, very close. And misses. Yeah, and I and I I think just fascinating that what's in theory a kid show, ha- spends so much time on a making a very complex bad character basically. Mm-hmm. Because Azula, you know, is just bad. She's just evil. Yeah. Um, but Suko is very complex, and you know, like he's one of those characters. And I like characters like this that you know they're always kind of gruff or mean, but every once in a while they they smile just a little bit, and you feel like that means a lot. Hmm, yeah. You know, Aang, you know, if he smiles, he smiles. I mean, that's like his normal state of being. <laughs> um, you know, when he's upset. I mean, I mean, Aang has a wide range of emotion. Most of the main characters do. Yeah. But, you know, Suko, because he is so kind of boxes himself into one sort of personality, it's interesting to see him test other types of re- ways of reacting. It's true. Yeah. It, again, wonderful show. We'll move on, but... Yeah. If if you've never seen any Avatar: The Last Airbender, by all means, go see it. Um, I don't care if you have prejudice, uh, <clears throat> prejudice against anime or cartoons in general, but it's just a very intelligent, um, wonderful show. All right. Next is. Crackpot's Corner. Crackpot's Corner, this is just where we throw out some random ideas that be cool to see happen. It may or may not ever happen, but it's fun to dream. 
So uh, I started last time, you start this one. Oh, I start this time, okay. Uh, this is one, <laughs> I have ideas that have been in my head for a long time, this is one of them, and probably won't work. I, I would like to write a full-length motion picture animated that's basically two hours of wacky races. <laughs> uh, I have a thing for crazy car car race shows. Um, I need to see. Dad has this movie. He's what is it? So someone in their jolly jalopies. That, know, sounds, I, he, that sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't can't think of the name. He says I need to. He I need to go watch it. But describe wacky races a little bit for people. Who yeah, don't wacky know. wacky races is what Han Barbera and the just like it's a race and they all I don't know it's cars sometimes blimps. Boats. I mean, all kinds of vehicles. I think they had one. Into... I think they had one series where they're in outer space. Oh, I don't know if I've seen that one. But and and the he's always doing crazy things. It's basically like a giant pod race. Mm. We've seen episode one um, of Star Wars, which is a theme today. <laughs> but what I love is the is the frantic energy that you if you write it right. You have like you know twelve characters, all with quirky personalities, all you know struggling to win, and all kinds of double dealings and personality conflicts and stuff like that. My idea is it has to be animated partly because I want to do kind of crazy stuff with it. I would love to have it so it's an intergalactic transdimensional race. <laughs> so it starts out, and you got all these you know all kinds of different people, and they have all their crazy ships. But the trick is. You're racing through like across the planet, but every ship's hooked up to this, I don't know, dimensional something that randomly it'll flip all the ships into into somewhere else. So you have to be ready for any any terrain, any sort of antagonistic monster. So you could um, be in a desert one minute, and then suddenly next minute you're underwater. Exactly. So you have these crazy ships that have to you know deal with all this, and you have you know. Fathers and sons working together, and you know the person who's won ten thousand times. And I have these two uh, sportscasters, who's the one's always very bombastic and talking. The other one always tries to get word in edgewise and can't. Um, That's fantastic. And I think at one point there's some law broken, so you have them pulled in front of the trial. And I think one time they end up in the middle of a war zone. And I ha I haven't wrote I haven't even wrote any ideas down really. Just I would love to try to see if you can how fast you can. Keep action going for two hours. And, like, who would you want the audience to be rooting for? I guess that would be another interesting question. Well, I think you'd have to have at least one or two character arcs that I think there'd probably be a love story in there between two of the two of the racers. But you'd have to have some personality arc so that even if only one person can win, but you have, speaking of endings, um, <laughs> emotional endings that are happy for other people even if they don't win. Hmm. You know, they True. get the girl, they survive, they, whatever. You know, they just beat, they didn't get come in dead last, that sort of stuff. Maybe one of them is like this really like 99-year-old geezer that's just trying, you know, like the old people who do marathons, they just, yeah. want, they just want the experience. He's just trying, he's just out for kicks. I channeled part of this in my, if you go to my website, the nickhayden.digitalnautilus.com, go to the snapshots, which is all the flash fictions, the one called... What is it called? It's about the. It's like it seems like a pod race, but it's like it was born out of this idea. Yeah, I remember that one. What is it called? Um, I don't know. I'll Some crazy one. Well, well, we'll we'll try to put in the show notes or something. Okay. Um, I, I or I could I could look it up real quick. Okay, look it up real quick. But and I just have never done it partly because I mean no one's going to make an. I, at this point, I'm not going to get an animated film made. I'm lucky to get a book published and sold to more than ten people. So. <laughs> Uh, but it's going to stick it back there. I, I've always loved the frantic. I think that's why I love another movie very few people I think have seen is Rayoland Murders. Mm, um, yeah. Just crazy for most of the movie. Well, you know, I've told you this before, but a, another movie you really need to see that's in that, that's in that genre is Speed Racer. Uh, see, yes. I, you've said numerous times and then go see Speed Racer. So Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's really just like that. I mean, it, it focuses, I mean, the main character is very obviously Speed Racer himself, but there's a whole bunch of other wacky characters and antagonists and, and double dealings and crazy cars. That, the Wachowski brothers who directed it, they came up with a, 
with a term for the kind of action that they had in their races. It was called carfoo, <laughs> <laughs> which just kind of gives you an idea of all these these really futuristic looking cars just kind of jumping over and around each other and spinning around and defying physics and nice and. And like I think I told you before, that really the best way to describe it is Mario Kart on crack. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it's very colorful and kind of kind of acid trippy, really. Nice. Anyone, if you listen to podcasts long, you'll learn that there's two things that have been kind of stuck in my head. This frantic energy, which I think I originally got from this cartoon, which no one's ever seen, called Puss in Boots Travels Around the World. Um where there's all kinds of, it's a race, basically, around the world between Puss in Boots and, and his friend Hog something, and this other guy who's trying to stop him. Um, and then clock towers. I always <laughs> wonder, I need to write a book that ends in a clock tower. Yeah. I'm going to share a story with a church tower. That's cool. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what's your, what's your crazy idea today? Well, let me throw out, the, the story you were talking about is called Photo Finish. It's photo fi- Okay, that's right. Photo number 17 on your list of snapshots or flash fictions, which are really, really short short stories. Yeah, they're like less than a thousand words. Most times less than seven hundred words. Well, um, I've got – I'm trying to decide if I, if I want to talk about both of my crackpot ideas or save one. I think I'll say – because we're probably running a little long here. Um, I think I'll save what, the more realistic one for later, and I'll go with a way out there one that I thought of just recently. If you've ever seen the show Mystery Science Theater 3000, which if you, if you haven't, it's a show about a guy who's trapped up in the satellite. This mad scientist is forcing him and his robots to watch really, really bad movies in hopes of finding a movie so awful that it will drive humanity insane. The cue to go into the theater, they do segments in the satellite, but then when the cue, the cue to go into the theater and watch more of the movie is uh, there's a siren goes off and they go, we got movie sign! And so then they go in and watch the movie and make fun of it as, you know, they do riffs and you see them watching it. It's a fun show. But this movie sign thing, it occurred to me recently, what if, I think this would be a great addition to film school if we had an instituted movie sign. <laughs> where all of a sudden, you won't know, you know, it could be at any part of the day, suddenly there's a siren that goes off in the building. Everyone goes, movie sign! And we all rush into the theater to see <laughs> some, whatever movie has been decreed for the day. That would be great. It's like siesta, but with movies. It'd, it'd be like it'd be, and particularly since you know, I'm assuming that our faculty wouldn't be trying to um, drive us insane with really bad movies. It'd be something worth watching, and it could be a complete surprise. I think they should have town-wide movie signs. That would be awesome, and everyone could be rushed. I mean, it'd be a free. Obviously, it'd be a free event. Otherwise, it'd be like extortion or something. Well, and ten bucks for popcorn. Yeah, yeah, ten bucks. Chip in for popcorn and stuff like that. <laughs> but all of a sudden, a random day, you get to, you, you might be in the middle of a phone call and it's, we got movie sign! <laughs> and everyone rushes off to the movie theater to see uh, see what, what's to be seen. <laughs> that, that, I might, you know, some people might say that might really hurt the economy, but I think it might help uh, stress levels. Well, you know, in, in Mexico, they do uh, siestas. Yeah, I think, I, think, I, think it, I think we should get, we need to start a petition for movie sign. I, I agree. Weekly movie sign. We'll do it once a week for now. We can move up to once a day later. There, there you go. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that might be easier. And plus, just think about how much more uh, film literate our population would be. That's true. I mean, most people just kind of watch the very, you know, most pop culture things without really, you know, expanding their horizons much. And, and I'm that way to a degree. And I, I've admitted before, there's a lot of, there's a lot of classic and independent films that i like to see but i i very rarely go out of my way to watch them when i'm watching it for a class like the jazz singer for instance might not have ever watched that except for class and while it's maybe not on a must-see list as we talked about earlier for me as a as a learning about film history it was definitely worth the watch so be a fun way to institute uh to promote film literacy that way. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good idea. I think we must implement it immediately. <laughs> so I thought that's a good crackpot corner. I think that's a good place to uh, wrap up the podcast. Yeah, that's all we've got. Yep, that's. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to get sick of saying that now. <laughs> all right, we got one more soundtrack to uh, close out our time together, and this is one that I picked out. Do we do we want to do the 
the email and stuff first and then just leave off with the music? Yeah, that, that's a good idea. Let's, let's give some of the contact information. Our email address is derailedtrains at gmail.com. Send your uh, praises and your thanks and your bomb threats to us. Um, also questions and uh, suggestions would work as well. Nick is married. I'm an eligible single, so feel free <laughs> to send, um, you know, that kind of information. I think that thing. I think that next time we need to have a whole a whole thing needs to be romance for our story school. <laughs> that could be an interesting topic. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll think about that. <laughs> our podcast will probably be on a bi-weekly basis for now, just to make it more manageable. Um, because I, again, I am in grad school, and my time is a valuable commodity at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, I'm married and have a kid and work and that's right. some other stuff. And try and trying to finish this book. So That's right, yeah. So good luck. Next time we'll give you a little more update about various projects we're working on. You heard a bit about Nick's book, The Squire, and I'll talk about some of the mainly school stuff that I'm working on that I'll share a bit of a bit of that. In the meantime, my soundtrack choice for tonight as we uh, ride off into the sunset is a remix from the game Sunset Riders. Great game. Yeah, from uh, Super Nintendo, and I believe it was arcade game. That's why I play on the arcade more than anywhere else. Yeah. And this is this is a remixed, rem- remix by Dr. Manhattan, and it's called Mr. Pink Poncho's Western Rock Band. So with that, Nick, you got your cowboy hat? I got my cowboy hat. Oh, I got sombrero, actually. It's the oh. same one uh, Aaron used in Halo Trilogy. Nice, nice. And I got my boots. I got my spurs. I think we're I think we're ready to, to ride. All right. So this is this is Tim. This is Nick. And we will see you next time. Adios. Ride 'em, cowboy.